Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news from China. Subscribe to our access program and tap directly into our digital newsroom through our Slack channel. Receive discounts on tickets to our conferences and free admission to our live podcasts, plus early access to the podcast. SubChina is a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I am in New York this week, where I'm joined by the notorious Jin Yumi, known in some quarters as Jeremy Goldcorn. Jeremy, of course, is editor of SubChina. Yumi. Please greet the people. Yo, people, how you doing? Uh, so, China's sharp power has been the subject of a great deal of discussion within the community of China watchers in the last year or so. Uh, concerns have grown over influence operations or even efforts to interfere in political processes uh, through Chinese embassies, through consulates in Western countries, or, or through the work in those countries of the United Front Work Department, uh, which is something Chinese President Xi Jinping infamously described in a speech in 2014 as a magic weapon. So today we are going to focus on the country where the debate over this has perhaps been the loudest and where there is arguably the most at stake. I speak, of course, of Australia. We have seen a heated kerfuffle over the publication of a controversial book by a prominent Australian public intellectual, Clive Hamilton. The investigation into an Australian MP named Sam Dastiari, his resignation in January over his acceptance of donations tied to China, and a couple of dueling open letters issued by scholars of China. So to talk about these issues in Australia and the similar debates that are now happening here in the U.S., we are delighted to welcome David Brophy, senior lecturer in modern Chinese history at the University of Sydney and a prominent scholar on Xinjiang. David wrote a widely circulated and highly critical review of Clive Hamilton's book, Silent Invasion, China's Influence in Australia. Uh, he was also the author of one of those open letters, which was signed by dozens of prominent Australian scholars of China. David happens to be here in New York, and we are very glad that he was able to join. David, welcome to Seneca. Kaiser, hi, Jeremy. Great to be here. We are also joined by Andrew Chubb, who is a postdoc fellow this year at the Princeton Harvard China and the World program. Andrew did his doctoral work at the University of Western Australia, and you may have heard him on our recent show about nationalist public opinion and China's behavior in the South and East China Seas. Andrew was a signatory to David's open letter too, and has involved himself in this debate as well. Andrew, welcome back to Seneca. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great. Uh, so before we get started, I want to point out first that I have made no secret of my my own position on China's influence and interference operations. And, you know, my concerns over what I, I strongly believe has been an overreaction. Uh, my views are very much a matter of public record. Uh, I recognize that uh, with the author of and a signatory to that first open letter, the one that's more critical of the overreaction, we haven't invited the other side, as it were. But I, I do want to do our best to represent that side's views dispassionately uh, in the course of our conversation. And I also want to be sure that our guests talk about, you know, their own bona fides. I mean, my by my lights, I mean, neither of you guys is exactly an apologist. Uh, you, you've you know written a lot of stuff that doesn't exactly toe the party line uh, in, in your academic work. Um, so why don't each of you tell us a bit about your own research. Andrew, why don't you go first and maybe establish some of these critical bona fides? <laughs> sure. Well, um, as we discussed in the uh, earlier podcasts, I study Chinese public opinion uh, and uh, foreign policy issues related to maritime disputes in particular. And so I think, gee, bona fides. How does that give me bona fides? Well, I, I, I'll, give, I'll give him bona fides. He's, yeah. not, he's not a panda hugger, okay? No, no. I mean, you're talking about, you know, belligerence, often some quite bellicose behavior, uh, and, uh, you know, China's kind of truculent position on a lot of, of, of maritime disputes. In fact, in, in. I've written about democracy activists, I've written about propaganda strategy, 
uh, written about China's intentions to control the South China Sea. Okay, yeah, yeah absolutely. And then what about you, uh, David? What, what you're you're a Xinjiang scholar? So. Yeah, I'm primarily a historian of, of Xinjiang, so I deal with some pretty sensitive issues. Uh, there, I, I first went to Xinjiang in 2002. Then I spent a year there in 2003-4. I ended up writing my first book on the uh, the emergence of a Uyghur national movement uh, in the early 20th century. So it's a story that takes place on both sides of uh, China's border in in the northwest and touches on a whole range of issues that are extremely difficult to discuss in, in China today. So I, I don't imagine I'll be appearing on the shelves of uh, Beijing's bookshops uh, anytime soon. But I, you know, alongside that, I do also write. Um, you know, commentaries on the situation in Xinjiang and give commentary uh, to the media uh, as well. So I'm very committed to the, um, you know, the importance of uh, maintaining our legitimate criticisms of China and, and certainly uh, resisting any effort to, uh, to, uh, to stifle that um, criticism. Okay, but <laughs> let's talk about Sam Dastyari. What is he alleged to have done and what lessons should the Australian public take away from the scandal he was embroiled in? Well, so there's two aspects to the um, the Dastyari scandal as it's uh, as it's unfolded. The first concerns the question of uh, political donations. So, uh, Sam Dastyari was involved in uh, in soliciting very large donations from some uh, some Chinese donors. Uh, one of them, in particular, a Chinese uh, Chinese Australian Australian citizen, one whose citizenship application is uh, is still pending and. You know, alongside that, he seems to have got uh, himself into a quite uh, intimate relationship with these figures to the to the point he was actually forwarding them his um, his private bills for things like laundry uh, and so on, which um is certainly um certainly not a good look. So initially, that was the first thing to come out, and and he he took a hit uh, around that. The the second aspect to that was um, a story that emerged later. Um, involving a meeting that he had with one of these uh, one of these gentlemen, Huang Xiangmo, uh, in which he is said to have indicated to Huang that, given that it was on the public record that Huang was um, you know a figure of interest for Asia, it might be better if they they leave their phones on the table and, and step outside. And so somehow that came out, and this was blown up into a sort of a, an espionage scandal. And that was, I think, the final straw for for Sam Dastyari. So that's basically the um, the basics of the. Um, the, the There's case. actually a South China Sea angle to it too. Oh, really? um, there was when the first time Sam Dastyari got demoted, it followed after mm-hmm. the revelation of uh, some comments that he made to Chinese media about the South China Sea being China's internal affair. Um, and uh, this is this, this sort of, as an MP, as as a senator, yes, uh, but but specifically to Chinese language media, he was uh, kind of you know feeding. As a certain politician in Australia once said, you know, feeding the chooks, um, so sort of giving the media what they wanted to hear. Um, is, and that it, a, is that an Australian expression? Uh, there was a particularly uh, nasty character in 1970s and 80s Queensland politics called Joe Bielke Peterson, who sort of uh, ran a bit of a police state and at the same time kind of uh, kept on top of the media pretty effectively by feeding them whatever it was that he thought that they wanted to distract attention away from his dodgy regime. <laughs> so, David, is I mentioned that you had written a review about Clive Hamilton's book. Uh, maybe we should start with, by talking about the whole controversy over its initial publication, how that was handled. Can you review what happened for our listeners and tell us what the popular telling of this gets right and gets wrong? Yeah, so I suppose the first thing I'd, I'd like to say is that I'm, you know, very glad that, uh, the publication of this book wasn't, uh, wasn't prevented. It's very important that we can have all voices participating in this debate. And I really hope now that it doesn't attract any kind of, uh, any kind of litigation. Clive Hamilton did have some difficulty getting this book published. We don't have all the facts available to us, but the story as it's emerged in public is that the, the lawyers at the publishing house where he usually publishes his work were hesitant to take on this book uh, immediately. They were continuing to, uh, to look at it, requesting revisions, counselling uh, delay, uh, and Clive Hamilton decided that he wanted to get it out uh, as quickly as possible, so, so took it. Uh, elsewhere. Um, right, so it's not true. That's important to underline. It's not true that the book was actually censored in Australia or prevented from being published. It was that the publishing house wanted to take some extra time. And they were fearful of what? Well, this, the narrative that emerged was that the, this was ultimately a threat from Beijing. Now, Clive Hamilton was, was happy to admit that there were no specific threats. 
there may have been some wording in one of the letters from the, the publisher that they worried that some unidentified agents connected to Beijing may have a hand in, um, in pursuing the book uh, after publication. But reading between the lines, basically what the lawyers were worried about was the fact that there were already defamation cases proceeding through Australian courts arising out of some of the reportage around this, this Chinese influence uh, story throughout 2017. And, and Clive Hamilton's book was largely a compilation of that reportage. So it was, it was predictable that it would contain a number of the same uh, stories. And so it's not that surprising uh, in that case that the lawyers uh, at Allen and Unwood would, would be, uh, you know, would be hesitant. Right, they now, cover their asses as lawyers are trained to do, right? Yeah. I mean, the only way we can assert that there's any connection to Beijing here, there is if we, if we simply assume that any Chinese Australian who would take legal action uh, against the book uh, in the aftermath of its publication would be acting as an agent of, of Beijing. And that's precisely the allegation that these people are taking legal action to, to contest. Who had actually taken some of the earlier legal actions against the reportage that you spoke of? Well, there's, there's Huang Xiangmo and, and uh, is, in fact, no. Is, is Huang Xiangmo have a defamation case? Chow Chak Wing definitely does. There have been three cases. And he's another very wealthy, ethnically Chinese Australian with ties to the mainland. Indeed. Chow Chak Wing is one of the donors uh, who had connections to, to Sam Dastiari. He's a very, uh, very prominent uh, donor and prominent in, in public life. There are three cases uh, so far. Uh, two of them have been settled. Uh, one was a case that Huang Xiaomo took against the Herald Sun, against uh, allegations that he was a Chinese spy. Uh, the Herald Sun settled. Uh, they apologized. There was a second case uh, involving one of the, uh, the young Chinese women who was who was interviewed for the Four Corners story that is really at the heart of um, this this story. And Maybe the you should ID that, the Four Corners story, yeah. Yeah, so the, um, the Four Corners program aired in, I want to say, sometime early in June the second half of uh, June, June 2017. Uh, the title of the program was uh, Power, Power and Influence. Influence. Yeah, Power and Influence. Uh, it was a story that ran the gamut of a series of... Stories involving quite high-level intrigues uh, in Canberra, stories about uh, Chinese students, stories about uh, protests that had been mobilized for the visits of uh, visiting Chinese dignitaries, and so on. One of the young women who was interviewed for that program, who was presented as having, as having admitted to being an informant, essentially, for the Chinese embassy among the Chinese student community. Uh, she, she objected very strongly to the, um, the way that that was portrayed, and she found a uh, no-fee law firm to actually take that up, and that case is now settled uh, as well. Right. So one thing I think that's important to point out in terms of the ABC and Fairfax investigations, uh, which did raise some important issues um, regarding Australia's, particularly its domestic political setup, is that the whole thing was kind of framed, introduced by a very cloak and dagger kind of reenactment scene about uh, a raid on a suspected spy and the discovery of uh, of sensitive documents in the house of a person who suspected of who was suspected of spying for uh, China, uh, and then it proceeded to sort of as as David mentioned run the whole gamut of these various different aspects of Australia's. Uh, relations with China and China's uh, influence within Australia, uh, which includes all sorts of other things uh, which are really quite far removed from spying. And in fact, the insinuation that it is a form of spying, for example, uh, the the Chinese student groups or uh, political donations and things like that is, is really quite misleading. And so the framing, although the uh, the investigations raised some important issues, uh, I think the framing was a big problem with that. Hmm. Uh, David, with as little normative language as you can manage, what are Clive Hamilton's claims? And then separately, is there anything that he basically gets right? Right. So the claims really run the gamut from very big picture issues. So the, the first chapter essentially claims that, that China has as its ultimate goal reducing Australia to some kind of vassal status, including up to the point of actually making territorial claims on, on the Australian mainland. That He considers that uh, a distinct possibility in the future. It then runs through a range of different issues that are set within that larger background. This includes a, a very strong point that comes through is his emphasis on 
China's uh, success up until this point in, in co-opting, subverting a range of institutions and uh, elite groups through politics, uh, the media. He paints a picture of the Australian elite as essentially pro-Beijing and uh, and inclined to uh, to sell out the interests of ordinary Australians to further their mutually beneficial relationship with with China. There's a number of other aspects that he he touches on in, in terms of China's specific activities to to restrict the free speech of Chinese citizens uh, in Australia. That's a whole other sphere that's that's worth uh, discussing uh, as well. And he and he talks at length about this issue of sort of citizen spies, uh, uh, which kind of ties into the whole of society threat that's been talked about here. Christopher Ray. Christopher Ray, the public. Which uh, is the notion that just ordinary Chinese people, you have to be suspicious of them because they're uh, informal agents of the Chinese state. Right, and that uh, and that's sort of on record there in, in his public testimony. Hmm. This is achieved in, in part by a methodology of, of connecting the dots from party through United Front to community organization down to, say, student association, and then just sort of collapsing those links. Uh, so you get to the point where student organizations on campus are simply arms of the uh, Chinese Communist Party, uh, that the student activity, therefore, has to be seen within the terms of a, a national security threat. There's um, There's various different points at which he, I think, pulls out Chinese actors from a wider context of, of comparable activity, which then allows him to link all these different stories together in a, in a, in a that creates the impression of a systematic, coordinated Chinese campaign to, uh, to achieve these, these ends. And I think that that is part of the real problem with the book, that it's not so much that the the, the stories that he's pointing to, the, the facts that he's presenting don't exist, but the way that they've all been framed uh, in terms of this, um, this, this bigger picture uh, of a concerted Chinese effort. It's to, connected to, dots to create sort of a conspiratorial... And uh, the dots yeah. are real, basically. Well, look, but take, take the, the Dastiari. has been... Well, the Dastiari case, for example. I mean, the donations are real. Sam Dastiari was clearly willing to uh, spout a much more pro-China position on the South China Sea to, to solicit these types of, of donations. But unless we see that within the wider context of a, a political system, which is really awash with money uh, in Australia, that, that both parties are very eager to fill their coffers with all sorts of donations, be it from China, be it from domestic uh, lobby groups or so on, then I think we're creating a, a distorted picture uh, of the situation there. So I mean, again, there's 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 smoke here, but there's also fire, right? I mean, maybe help us to separate the the two in in, in this Australian context. Yeah, uh, what should Australians be concerned about? Well, uh, one one thing that I'm trying to do uh, in in a sort of little project that I've got going at the moment is to really disaggregate all of these different issues that have been strung together under these sweeping labels, such as. Chinese influence operations or uh, United Front work. And really, there, there are a lot of them, and they're quite different. They come from different causes. They have different relationships to Australian law, different relationships with, say, democratic values. So, for example, just to run through a few of the, the, the various things that have been brought up in relation to this discussion, we've got espionage, we've got donations to political parties, We've got lobbying and cultivation of ties with politicians. We've got interference with the free speech rights of dissidents and opponents of the Communist Party regime within Australia. We've got control or influence uh, over diaspora media, um, so Chinese language media within Australia, which have been well known to, to have become increasingly pro-Beijing over, over recent years as they've been serving a different audience. We've got uh, mainstream Australian English language media cooperation deals, so inserts of China Daily into Fairfax newspapers and ABC content sharing arrangements. The list goes on. We've got overseas students' activism. We've, we've got the vexatious or so-called vexatious defamation problem. Mm -hmm. um, we've, we've got the funding of academic institutions and think tanks, so things like the Australia-China Relations Institute and the Confucius Institutes. We've got academic self-censorship. All of this has been bundled up together under this 
Chinese know, invasion. Uh, uh, well, silent invasion silent is invasion. is one way that it's mm. been framed. Yes, mm. uh, but even you know, in less maybe um, alarmist terms, the Fairfax investigation that sort of complemented the ABC investigation that we mm. were talking about mm-hmm. before. Um, that was headlined, you know, con- contained lots of important investigative journalism in there. But the headline was, you know, China's Operation Australia. Now, operation implies that there's a, you know, it, it's, Coordination it's a coordinated and, uh, action that is directed from Beijing, which when you think about the list of things that are bound up in that discussion, um, that's probably not an accurate way of understanding that sort of a broad-ranging set of issues. At the same time, you can see why it has become so so knotted and how difficult it is for an ordinary person to be able to tweet these things well, apart. Well, just to take a couple of examples that, that show you the different causes. I mean, uh, David was mentioning before money in politics. So if it's the case that Australian or American politics is kind of awash with money and that money talks in, in our you know, flawed democratic political systems, uh, then... It's That's probably not surprising right. that as China uh, and Chinese citizens have more money, that they will be increasingly engaging in that moneyed political process. Um, that's different from an operation uh, directed from Beijing to, you know, subvert uh, a Western country sovereignty. Again, uh, if we look at, say, Chinese students engaging in nationalist uh, challenges to their lecturers challenging them to, to, to not refer to Taiwan as a country or to demand that um, maps reflect China's view of different territorial disputes. It's not at all clear that the uh, consulate is telling them to do that. And it's, it, it's, it's not something that you can necessarily jump to that conclusion about. Uh, or just something that should be handled at the federal level. It should be maybe something that's you know at the level of the institutions themselves. Right, precisely. And, and if there is a problem in those examples... The Chinese students expressing their sort of patriotic desire to see Australia's maps corrected, it's not in any way contrary to free speech principles. Um, they can make that demand. They can make that request as loudly as they like. The only time that becomes a problem to free speech principles is if the university simply caves into the, to that sort of demand and doesn't show any regard for standards of academic freedom. I just wanted to point out another example of where the, the, the sort of multiple different causes that are at play in these, in these various issues. Um, the defamation action uh, or the threat of defamation action um, is very much a result. I've, I've been speaking to some lawyers about this. As they, they tell me that there's nothing out of the ordinary about the kind of fear that people of Chinese background or with connections with the, the CCP uh, would potentially pursue defamation action. And, and Australian uh, defamation law is considerably more lax than it is here in the U.S. Australian it's defamation to the UK, law, right? I mean, legal scholars are, uh, are, are, have a fairly strong consensus that Australia's defamation laws uh, have major problems mm-hmm. um, in terms of defences of, uh, of, of, of things being in the public interest and responsible journalism not being adequate to, to allow free speech. But... Again, that that's not that's not a conspiracy directed from Beijing. That's a deficiency or an outdatedness of a particular aspect of Australian law. Let's talk about the dueling letters, as I've described them. The first written by David here and signed by, among many others, Andrew and by our friend Jeremy Barmay. Again, you know, somebody with really solid critical bona fides, and he's never shirked from heaping criticism on the party. Uh, I mean, starting with your letter, David, what prompted you to write this? And Andrew, what did you find compelling about it that you, you know, that made you among the first signatories to it? Well, I have to correct you, Kaiser. It was it was more of a collective effort, this this letter. There was a lot of input from um, a variety of, of colleagues because there had been a, a kind of a collective forming of, of people who were concerned about the direction that the uh, the debate uh, around Chinese influence was was going in, so that was really what that letter tried to to distill. But because it was uh, an intervention into a debate around the specific security laws that had been proposed uh, in the wake of this uh, story, we did also uh, want to uh, want to stake out a, a position there. So the letter basically did two things. I mean, it pointed to the fact that we had serious concerns about the impact on civil liberties. Uh, the ability of scholars in particular to engage in uh, public discourse around questions that touch on Australia's foreign policy, 
and this is the type of thing that journalists have expressed concern about uh, as well. And they've actually received some guarantees in the revised legislation that they'll be protected, but there's nothing for, um, mm. nothing for academics uh, yet. But the second point that we were trying to make in the letter was that we felt Parliament would be proceeding under a misapprehension were they to enter into this debate uh, on the assumption that, yes, the, the, the community of China scholars in Australia had consensus that China was this immediate threat to our sovereignty, that we wanted to really indicate that a lot of us had qualms and, and misgivings about various aspects of the debate as it had been conducted, and also the fact that we wanted to caution uh, politicians uh, as they engage in this debate. We have to be really careful that this doesn't spill over to create fear and um, paranoia towards the Chinese-Australian population. We really which, which Australia has a long history of. Uh, absolutely. I mean, this, this goes back right to our, our founding moments, the first act of legislation to be passed by the Australian Federation was, of course, the, the white, white Australian policy. Yeah. That um, was the first. I didn't realise so it was the first it was, act. You know, it was a, it was a, <laughs> oh, wow. It was a top priority for the Australian Parliament. And, and this, is, um, you know, this is not to say that people who are engaging you know, in the debate from the, the other side are in, in any way motivated by nostalgia for those types of... Um, stains on our on our record but it's not something that we can brush aside uh, it's something that we have to be vigilant towards the whole time and as well we have to um i think solicit as wide a range of voices in this debate as we can we have to make sure that chinese australians in particular uh have full freedom and confidence to participate in this debate and and put forward critical viewpoints without feeling that they'll be branded an apologist or a stooge for Beijing uh, and so on. And, and unfortunately, we've seen that type of discourse develop. And here too. Um, what about the second letter? What do you know about it and its origins? And would it be fair to characterize that second letter as more pro-Clive Hamilton than the one you wrote and signed? I think implicitly, uh, it sort of took on uh, an interpretation of the first letter that... Uh, mm, how do I say it? No, no I'm not sure. Well, I mean, I no, guess what, what struck me... It does, I think is I'm, it really supporting Clive Hamilton? You yeah, I, I'm not the first person to point this out, I'm sure, but it, it strikes me on reading the two letters that, I mean, say for you know a few important points, the clear purpose of the second was, you know, it's a challenge, it was a rejoinder to the first, but the, the commentary that was surrounding it, not actually included in the second letter, uh, for for instance, by in the media by Feng Chongyi, for example. I mean, he, he talks about... Uh, saying that you were implying that there was racism at work. Uh, I've seen this in a lot of places, but to my reading, the two letters are remarkably similar. They actually make the same sorts of appeals to, you know, the uh, openness of, of, of Australian society. and Yeah, and, and I, I actually wrote a piece a few weeks ago um, trying to identify, in fact, just what the disagreements were, um, because... Uh, they are actually a, a lot less than the sort of, uh, re, you know, original letter and then rejoinder that sort of seemed to be correcting the record type of thing uh, that, that, that that kind of setup would, would suggest. Um, one thing that I was able to, well, I, I, in, that, in that article, I sort of um, distilled it down to sort of four points of disagreement. Mm -hmm. um, one of them being the scope of CCP activities within Australia. So as David was mentioning before, the rolling together or, or the, the connecting of uh, dots uh, uh, that, that range from all the way from espionage to, say, uh, student activism and uh, things like that, uh, vexatious defamation claims, whether you roll all of that together into one China's Operation Australia or whether you say that the Communist Party, you know, conducts a range of political activities in Australia, but not all you know, pro-Beijing, pro-China uh, speech within Australia is necessarily Directed a result from. of uh, this Beijing-directed United Front uh, strategy. So there's a disagreement there in terms of the, the, the scope of uh, what is in fact a result of, of the Chinese government's um, attempts to exercise its influence abroad. Mm -hmm. Uh, another disagreement is sort of over this question of uh, racism. So the second letter's premises really seem to be that um, the first letter somehow implied that the debate was motivated by racism. And in fact, 
the point that was made in the first letter was actually that it's the inflammatory and sort of uncareful alarmist language that risks fanning racism at the margins. Not that the people who are engaging in this discourse are racist, right. but rather that it has the effect yeah. of uh, increasing racism. And there's been evidence of that already within Australia. Not surprising um, at all. Yeah. Not, not particularly surprising in, in the immediate aftermath of, of the kind of storm that, that emerged in the middle of last year. Another, another disagreement sort of concerned the idea uh, of sovereignty. So, and the idea that um, there is a sort of a systematic scheme on the part of the Communist Party to undermine Australia's sovereignty, when I think we can, we can probably all agree that there have been violations of Australian sovereignty in terms of things like, say... Would you consider the, the censorship of the Taiwan fish? A violation of sovereignty. Jeremy, um, you want to explain that really quickly? The, yeah, I should do Taiwan that. So, if, you, if you're not aware of it, and where, well, actually, why don't we get an Australian to explain it, David? <laughs> can you tell us uh, what happened? Uh, so, as far as I'm aware, it, it, this took place in Rockhampton, which is in uh, in the north of Queensland. Um, so that we we can summarise for our readers as pretty remote part of Australia by. Sydney side of standards, anyway. Um, there was a, an artwork being installed uh, in a public space. This was produced by a, a young, young girl, very, very Year young, 11, I think, who's yeah, um, at least was, her mother background. was Taiwanese. And this was a, 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 a sort of animal shape, I think some kind of horse, perhaps. And on it were painted various flags. And one of these flags was uh, the Taiwanese flag. And she'd written Taiwan in Chinese characters on it. Uh, as well, the story then seems to be that the Chinese consul or someone from the consul contacted local government. We don't know exactly what they said, but put pressure on them to deal with this before the opening of some kind of trade fair in uh, in Queensland at the time, and and they complied. They they complied with this, which um, they explained their compliance in a in a sort of strange way too. Yeah. Yeah, he said they were bound by Australian foreign policy. I think that was the, although the, I mean, they're, they're, they're sort of, I think, making things up on the run now at the moment. They seem to have been extremely uh, out of their depth uh, in dealing with right. all this, which is often the case. You know, these things arise in places where people are least equipped to, um, to deal with them. You know, it's like the business school classrooms on our, on our campuses and so on. Um, there's clearly no law in Australia that says that uh, every work of uh, public art must comply with Australia's foreign policy on the status of um, particular countries. And I, I think it would have been quite, um, you know, quite straightforward for the council to simply tell these people that um, they were barking up the wrong tree and they, um, they weren't, um, weren't going to back well, down that a, that a, effectively. That a year 11 student's drawing of a fish with a flag of, of, of the Republic of China on it mm. is not a matter of foreign policy no, anyway. It's, it's, it does not yeah. rise to that. But this is a good but, example see, this is of, sovereignty, of that sovereignty, sovereignty right, question. Right. And so one for more, some people, right. that's a violation of sovereignty that they even asked this council to, to do something about this offending flag. Whereas, uh, from my perspective, I would I, I would not see that as a as a violation of sovereignty. I would see that as a case of the council failing to to uphold sovereignty, <laughs> uphold the, the the civil rights of of citizens right, right, and right, artistic right. freedom. But that's different from a a, a, a violation, a of, violation sovereignty. of sovereignty. Absolutely. And the fourth, you see a fourth difference between the two letters. Yeah, so the, the fourth difference of the letter is really the relative emphasis on uh, domestic versus international threats to civil liberties within Australia. The first letter was really, as David mentioned, a response, in fact, a submission to the, uh, the parliamentary review of the bills uh, introduce sweeping changes to Australia's espionage laws, as well as a, introduce a foreign agent's uh, registration system and ban donations from any foreign source to Australian political parties. So the, the first letter regarded that as being a more immediate threat to academic freedoms than the various actions that have been highlighted on the part of the CCP and of Chinese citizens, whereas the second was sort of speaking more in support of getting some legislation through the parliament as a matter of priority. Right. Uh, whereas the, the first letter is sort of saying, well, uh, we need to step back, you know, take a deep breath, uh, disaggregate the issues... And, and consider this carefully. So, so the second letter was a little more gung ho, I think, mm -hmm. in terms of. Yeah, I mean, this is this is what I've said on my my argument boils down essentially to, you know, our interest is to preserve this civic fabric that we hold so dear, 
what is the more pressing threat to it, the actual Chinese influence operations or our propensity to overreact to that threat? Precisely. Yeah. Yeah, right, right. So, I mean, I think uh, the three of you at least are all in broad agreement on this. What about the China watching world in Australia? How much of a schism is there uh, on the attitude towards this, this issue? I, I think as we've discussed, there's, there's a lot of agreement between these, these two letters. And I think that reflects a wider conversation that is, that is taking place across these lines within the Australian China watching community. I, I think that one of the reasons that people responded with the letter was this sense that, that the China watching community was coming under attack from from loose talk about um, China specialists being um, bought off, you know, having sold out to to China, and that that I think is quite a dangerous narrative that's that's taken hold. And I would hope that whatever side of the debate people come down on, that we can refrain from slinging around accusations of um, apologist, or capitulationist, uh, and so on. That that type of language is really corrosive of the um, the collegial relationship that we need. And so far, uh, that's to... been avoided. Do you think? Yeah, in my experience, it, it has actually. Well, I've spent the last At few months in, in America in so. the academy <laughs> among academics. It's been avoided. But perhaps not. In yeah, the, I think in the I think more could be done to um, to generate spaces for the debate to be uh, carried out in person with opportunities to actually thrash things out with the time necessary. I think it's you know the Australian China watching community is a pretty small and and scattered community, so we don't actually get much chance to to talk about these things face to face. But I hope that we can do that. What I'm worried about though is that there's a wider political context that may continue to to stir things up in a negative direction so the laws that i've i've been talking about they haven't actually gone to the parliament yet for debate and they will they will be debated uh in the next couple of weeks and given the way that politicians in australia were very free with accusations about people being a chinese agent and so on last year I just do worry that we're going to enter another period in which those types of accusations are being uh, are being levelled back and forth, and I, you know I really hope that we can avoid that. That's one of the reasons we wrote that letter to to try to preemptively put a bit stave of that off. You know? mm. So both of you have spent a fair bit of time in the United States recently, David and Andrew. Um, what do you think of the you know how, how different is it? Uh, are there strong parallels between the situation in the U.S. and uh, Australia? And maybe we can start with the the nature of Chinese efforts at influence. Are they following the same game plan? How well have these efforts worked? And do they pose a real threat? Uh, you know, uh, the different population sizes and economies and level of dependence on China make the situation rather different in Australia compared to the U.S. So, yeah, what do you think? How should we see the similarities mm. and differences? Well, the demographics are quite different. And, of course, the the basic geopolitical context is, of course, quite different. So Australia is a, an American ally, but it's it's located uh, in a region where China clearly would like to weaken the American alliance system. And so that's the context in which um, this is being discussed uh, in, in Australia. When you're talking about China and America, you're dealing with the great power rivalry that's, that's at the centre uh, of all this. Beyond that, I think all the various issues that have arisen in Australia, I think if you look for them in America, you can find them. And the, the stories are, are starting to, to come out. I think there's a much more concerted campaign around the Confucius Institutes here. That's one thing that I've noticed. There is a very strong push, it seems, to to actually abolish Confucius Institutes in Australia. And we haven't yet reached that point. I think even people uh, who've been extremely critical of Confucius Institutes, and I, I myself don't see it as an ideal model of scholarship on China by any means, but here you actually have this this strong push, and it's you know it's now being backed up by uh, people like Marco Rubio. Um, so it, it really th it looks as if things are starting to snowball here. There's clearly a lot of symbiosis between the, the discourses. There's been back and forth both. My perspective actually is that it was the talk about Russia in America that actually provided a bit of a template for a way to talk about Chinese influence in Australia. You had people like James Clapper come to Australia last year. He said what Russia did to America, China is doing to Australia. Hillary Clinton was just out in Australia actually saying the same thing. Then the sort of the story developed in Australia and then it was 
in a sense, exported back to America by people coming over here and talking about, you know, Australia is the canary down the coal mine. Right. Um, I think that the, the, the narrative that a lot of people in America have received about Australia has been uh, very much dominated by that, um, that alarmist perspective. So I've described Chinese influence operations in the United States, at least, as, as being clumsy and ham-fisted, as being obvious, you know, sort of discernible from a mile away, as ineffective in part because of its, you know, inelegance and everything, but also because we have a certain natural immunity to it in a plural society, or we ought to, at least. Uh, you know, illiberal ideas and influences just aren't supposed to take root, although I, I have to wonder whether our immune system has been compromised recently. Uh, but uh, in any case, they're also, and I'm, this is what I really want to talk to you, is they're mainly defensive. What It, it isn't like they're trying to undermine epistemic norms or uh, or, you know, as the Facebook ads that Russia took out seems to have been, you know, to pit people against one another on the issue of race. There's no effort to do that. It seems, by my lights at least, to be focused on deflecting or diminishing criticism of China to sort of plowing the field, you know, for, you know, for, for more acceptance of a PRC narrative. I'm not uh, sure that necessarily is just uh, defensive. Okay, though. no, that, um, that's what I'm asking. I, uh, so I, w where do you see the offense? Well, I think def defense and offense uh, obviously depends on what you see as the status quo. Sure. Um, uh, you know, offense being something to change the status quo and defense being something okay, to preserve okay. it. But I mean defensive uh, of, of, of China rather than trying to... Uh, to, defense, to, to, defensive of China's image and its reputation and its uh, China story and its narrative... Uh, in an increasingly offensive manner. There have always been people outside of China expressing a range of views uh, about the CCP, uh, about reforms in China, uh, about the way the Chinese foreign policy, the way things that should, should go. And, and I do think that there is an increasingly strong effort on the part of the party state to try to shut that down. Um, and so from that perspective, I think... Uh, I think you could you could certainly say that there's an offensive aspect to it. If you want to frame that overall in a larger kind of idea of, of, of defense of China's image throughout the world, you know, take take that to its logical endpoint, then you you basically got uh, you know China kind of cleansing the world of criticism of China. Still, I think it's qualitatively different than what Russia has been alleged to have been doing. Yes, uh, I think the anxieties around China and Australia do derive from a very real policy dilemma that Australia faces. It's the one that um, people like Hugh White have long been pointing to about the question of maintaining our staunch pro-American foreign policy while being so dependent on, on China for our financial prosperity. And that's a very real question. You know, my position is not just that everyone should just calm down, we can just continue. There's no contradiction here. We can um, continue to get rich and be a, an American ally. I think that there's clearly signs that that is there's a question mark as to how sustainable that will be. And I think that is what's really been the, uh, the driving force behind this turn on the part of the Turnbull government towards a more confrontational stance towards China. I think that that is what has led to this new wave of reporting around um, Chinese influence, which doesn't correspond to any actual strong uptick, I think, in, in Chinese uh, activity. But there is something there for Australians to be, uh, to be concerned about and to, and to grapple with. My perspective is, it's, is that it's very dangerous for us to imagine that we can commit to continue to play this role of backing up a heavy military, militarized American presence in East Asia. I think that just in the long term, that's not viable and that's going to get us into a very messy situation. As much as we would like to imagine that we are in there fighting for democracy and rule of law or, or things like that. Actually, what history shows is that engaging in a great power rivalry in a place like Asia means that we're inevitably going to get our hands dirty. Right. I think we need to, you know, we need to think about ways to diffuse this conflict before it gets to that point. Um, let's go back to the U.S. In, in May uh, this year, um, there was a Wilson Center, it's a think tank in D.C., and Kaiser spoke at the event, and the event was all about 
you know, Chinese influence operations. A man named Wang Huiyao, who heads a think tank uh, that looks at, among other things, returned students, was originally scheduled to speak. But he dropped out after Senator Marco Rubio went after the Wilson Center for not disclosing that Wang had some affiliation with the United Front Work Department. I mean, I, I, it took me a minute on Google to find uh, Wang's affiliation with the United Front, so I, I, I hardly feel the Wilson Center was guilty of, you know, hiding anything and I thought it was extremely regrettable that the guy didn't show up because I would have liked to hear what he <laughs> he would right. have said exactly. um, but I you know I appreciate he was probably in a pretty awful position um, what did the two of you make of that situation he uh, he should have done what um, we have a think tank in Australia called Aspie um, <laughs> and um, they just call themselves independent and, and they get away with it so um, I think he, he should have just um, taken a leaf out of their book of course you know they are um, they have close links to um, the defense department and um, and other private backers uh, as well but so the idea that um, someone that has some affiliation to organization that comes within the United Front work department that you know is a state body I guess if that's the standard that we're going to apply then I think we have a lot of work to do to, to clarify who is actually engaging in this debate and and the interests that they represent. I, I'm more than happy with the idea that organization, institutions uh, have interests that influence the way in which people present themselves in these, these discussions and, and so on. Everything I do as a historian is, you know, designed to, to train my students to take those uh, factors into account, make allowance for them, and then interpret the information that they're, they're presented with. I just think there's been so much emphasis on that side of the debate. People seem at the same time very resistant to discussing the possibility that there are people out there with institutional interests in, uh, in exaggerating the China threat. I, I think that's also um, an aspect that we have to look at. I think it's also important to add that um, the, I mean, this is, this is one area where scholars will typically, and, and it's, it's very important that uh, China scholars will go to the original Chinese language source materials and look at what the party is saying about these types of issues, look at United Front work regulations and uh, other, you know, what's on the United Front work site. That is important. But at the same time, it's really important to bear in mind that being within the target range of United Front work and doing something that is in accordance with China's interests does not necessarily mean that you are carrying out United Front work. For example, uh, you know, Chinese students at a, an Australian university who, you know, might um, say raise uh, some kind of some kind of question, as I mentioned, of the, the, their lecturer, and as they would see it, that's that's they're taking patriotic action to to sort of uphold the the, the image of the motherland or, or the ancestral land, and that is very much in accordance with the stated goals of United Front work in, you know, numerous documents uh, that identify Chinese overseas students as being uh, an important target of United Front work. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing it because of being targeted by United Front work. So again, it's, it's kind of like I was talking about last uh, podcast about the counterfactual. Okay. Can you be sure that the Chinese students would not have raised patriotic objections to their lecturers if it wasn't for the, the Chinese government uh, policies on, on trying to target overseas students to become, you know, more aggressively patriotic overseas. You have to consider uh, whether they did that because the government told them to or whether, in fact, it's possible that they had patriotic feelings anyway and that they were going to do that anyway because otherwise it gets very dangerous and, you, and you're, you're sort of looking at a situation where you're going to kind of impute someone's motives and sort of take away their rights to free speech, essentially, uh, in a context like Australia, on the basis of uh, an imputation that their views just align with, uh, or, you know, correlate with, with those of a foreign government. That's, that's right. That's right. So, guys, do you, do you see any evidence that China has learned anything from, from this experience that the UFWD or any of the or, other organs have, have backed off appreciably or have, you know, recalibrated their strategies or their approach? Uh, whether in Australia or in the U.S., um, or maybe that, that they should rethink that. Oh man, they, they really clearly have have encountered a pretty substantial obstacle. Do you see that anything's changed? I don't think so. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm going to just jump in on that and 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 say I don't think so because I think uh, they're uh, 
the latest incident, for example, over the the, the Taiwan with the Taiwan flag fish on it, um, just clearly shows that um, that the the uh, cadres out there who uh, have responsibilities are kind of interpreting their instructions uh, as including continuing to uh, assert China's politically correct positions overseas, doubling down uh, with right. increasing with increasing force, and we've also seen it in the the merging of uh, the Overseas Chinese Affairs Office into right. the United Front Work Department. They're obviously not that afraid of the label United Front Work being bandied around. You know, this is really, I mean, it's terribly unfortunate, but I think it, so much of this grows out of this this problem that, I mean, I've talked about that in, in the talk that I gave, that where there's this terrible incongruence between Chinese ideas of nationality, of civilization, of, of ethnicity, of culture, where, the borders don't match. There's a lot of spillover. And we're seeing that. I mean, you know, whether you're talking about Stern Hu from a few years ago or people like me, where there's some sort of claim uh, that, that China makes on its overseas communities that doesn't comport with our idea of Westphalian nation states. And this is a source of a lot of problems. And I just don't see China resolving this anytime soon. It's uh, very unfortunate. Now, the expectation is that, you know, overseas Chinese are only going to increasingly be, uh, you know, increasingly loyal to the motherland. Right. And boycott Gap if they put the wrong thing on their T-shirt. Um, so <laughs> let's so we're getting towards the end. Maybe we could end with a question about um, where you see things going in Australia from now. Is this rancor likely to increase and will the rift in the China watching community, will it widen? What's your forecast, both of you? Well, as I said, I think that there are, you know, serious geopolitical questions uh, at the heart of this, and, and they're not going away. Um, I think that there is a, you know, there is a serious debate to be had in Australia um, about our, about the viability of uh, the American alliance. I, I, I think that we really need to be looking for ways forward for the Asia-Pacific region that, uh, that take us away from the possibility of economic conflict turning into military conflict. This is something that I think Australia could play a positive role in. Current policy settings, though, would seem to indicate that's not the direction that we're heading in. We have um, a prime minister who, uh, who has said that we are uh, we have the closest possible military and security relationship with the United States. And, and the Labor Party, there is no, there's no serious d debate about that within the Labor Party. It's all doubling down. Yeah. So in that sense, I think that we as China scholars have a role to continue to, um, to keep up our criticism, our critical role in, in society, to sort fact from fiction, to question elements uh, of framing. All at the same time, you know, enacting our responsibility of scho as scholars to defend uh, academic freedom, to defend the ability for everyone in Australia to contribute to this debate. I, I think that we can do that. In fact, I think there are a lot of opportunities here for us to actually take these questions and make Australian society a whole lot better. I mean, I'm all for restrictions on political donations. I'm all for, you know, making it harder for cashed up businessmen to uh, restrict the publication of, of books. And so all of these things are actually opportunities that we can grasp and, um, you know, improve uh, Australian society for everyone. I'm sure he was going to say cashed up bogans there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite phrase from Australia. Huh? That was great. Uh, you know, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us again. David, great to finally have you on the show. I mean, um, this is and next me. time, Xinjiang, please. Yes, Xinjiang Definitely. next time, absolutely. Uh, before we pack up, let's make some recommendations. And before we do that, I do want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. Sign up for SubChina Access and show your support for Seneca and for the site and for the newsletter. Check out our growing catalog of podcasts in what we're now calling the Seneca Network. In addition to Caixin Seneca, we've also got the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China with Ray Ma and Ian Liu, uh, who are giving you know, a really quick lowdown on the week's top tech news. Uh, find it all wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, recommendations, Jeremy, why don't you kick us off? Okay, I would, uh, as somebody who's never really been interested in martial arts, I was quite surprised to really enjoy a book that I was sent a review copy of called Bruce Lee, A Life. Oh, it's I got that one too. I haven't Bruce read that. It's, it's, it's good, fantastic. Huh? Oh, wow. I mean, oh, yeah. You know, all kinds of details that I didn't know that, like, such as... Bruce Lee has got a bit of Jewish blood. Bruce Leibowitz. The author is Matthew Polly, and it's, you know, even if you're not, I'm not at the faintest bit interested in kung fu movies or Bruce Lee or martial arts, but I, I really, really enjoyed the book, and maybe I will become interested uh, from now on.
you know, I mean, just relatedly, uh, Ron Emitter has that new series called Chinese Characters, where he, he does sort of Chinese history and 20 Chinese lives. One of them is Bruce Lee. I heard it. It's, you know, it's like 13, 14 minutes long, but it's really good. I mean, I learned a lot from listening to this as well. I had very little knowledge about the man. Fascinating. David, what do you have for us? Well, we didn't get much chance to talk about Xinjiang today, and it, it is on my mind a lot because of the, um, the you know, the, the terrible situation there at the moment. So uh, it's just hot off the press. I haven't even had time to read it fully myself, but there's recent there's research out just today uh, by a um, German scholar by the name of Adrian Zenz. Uh, and Ryan Thumb, my friend and colleague, he has a follow-up piece in the New York Times. And this is dealing with the issue now that's on everyone's minds, the, the question of Uyghurs being rounded up and put into uh, what are re-education yeah. camps. Um, I don't know how much education's going on. Uh, you know, some, these, are, these are camps that people have been thrust into. Most people with no, no real idea about how long they're going to be there for. Various types of um, you know, routinized political training activities, uh, include, and as well as some pretty harsh physical treatment as well. So from, from what we can gather, this is something I think everyone who engages with China these days has to be aware of. Everyone who's having conversation about state of affairs in China today. This is something to bring up. Adrian Zenz has done a really good job of trawling through a lot of information about uh, tendering process to get at some, some of the questions about the scale of this, the numbers of people uh, involved. And uh, apparently some of that information has already been pulled off the internet now. So I guess he must be, he must be onto something. So I want to congratulate those guys for, for doing that and, and recommend it to everyone. That's, that's terrific. Uh, I do want to remind people that we, we talked to an AP reporter named Jerry Schur who uh, did a pretty extensive story about this specific issue. It's a series, really. And uh, that was from a few months ago. Yeah, that was we'll, a great We'll make sure show. to put a link yeah. on. Thank you. But we would definitely like to have you back again, yeah. David, to speak of the major focus rather than open lessons. Visit Ryan down in Durham let's where, do while you're down here. I mean, let's, let's, do let's, let's do it. Uh, we'll come into the Seneca South studio and do a recording on this. For sure. Very, very good. Great. Uh, uh, Andrew, what do you have for us? Well, in keeping with the Australian theme, um, I'm going to recommend something released last week by the Lowy Institute called the Asia Power Index. Oh, wow. That was so much fun to play with. It's <laughs> a lot of fun to play with. Um, and I think that's one of the really strong points about it is the way that it actually lets you, I mean, because at the end, at the end of the day, these types of indices, uh, you know, quantifications of, of intangible things like power um, are uh, ultimately, you know, there's a level of arbitrariness to them. And uh, so one thing that's really impressive about that is the way that it allows you to play around with the weightings according to your own views of what matters more sure. or less. I, I also think that um, some of their measures are actually quite interesting. Um, yeah. They actually went to the trouble of uh, checking the Google sort of prominence or the Google, Google-ability, is that the right word? The, the uh, Googledness of each country, which right. I think is actually a, a really interesting sure. um, and you know, potentially very useful index. Not of, a lot of people uh, Googling Laos, I guess. Uh, right, 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 precisely. Right. Um, and uh, a certainly uh, level of, uh, levels of, um, kind of prominence in other countries' uh, citizens' minds. Right. Uh, of course, they would need to have done it for uh, Baidu, Baidu instead right, of for China, uh, right, Google exactly. in, in, in China. Another one was um, visa-free uh, entry agreements, so the mm. uh, ability to travel visa-free to other countries as being um, a, a sort I bet of that correlates a lot with a, with a lot of other power sort of indices. Right? Yeah, I just thought that those, I mean, cultural power is always one of these really amorphous and kind of vague concepts. So I was impressed by the way that they um, went about trying to actually get some some handle on it. That's a great recommendation. Yeah, somebody, uh, a, a listener actually, uh, sent me a link to that, and and I, I spent a good hour just sort of fussing around with it. Tons of fun. That's a great great recommendation. I want to recommend a book called Strangers in Their Own Land: Anger and Mourning on the American Right by a, a, a Berkeley sociologist named Arlie Russell Hochschild. It takes its place alongside a number of books that try to sort of scale the empathy wall and take us into the mind of the, the Trumpist. I mean, in this case, it was pre-Trump is the Tea Party. Trump is a figure in it. You know, he's already launched his candidacy at the time this book starts. And, you know, she, she does extensive interviews with Tea Party activists and with extraordinary folks in a couple of parishes in Louisiana. And... 
she comes in really interested in this one thing. These are places that are so toxic in terms of the what the oil refineries there have done to the environment, just killed all the, the, the aquatic life in, in the bayous that where they're living, uh, where people have just ridiculous rates of cancer, and yet they are dead set against environmental regulation. They're anti EPA, they're, they're, they they see you know the, sort of the tree hugging liberals as the problem, uh, despite having suffered so much. So she was looking, she starts comes in looking at that inconsistency and sees how it's not really able to surmount the narrative that they have about being in line and waiting their turn, and then the liberal establishment having helped these other people to jump the queue in front of them. Uh, it's really quite powerful, and and as somebody who's always sort of advocated for cognitive empathy in thinking about Chinese people. I mean, I think I'd be a hypocrite if I didn't, you know, encourage us to do the same, although, you know... You often yeah. say that, f*** those people. I do, uh, if I do. If I may quote directly. I do, I yeah. do. So, yeah, perhaps you could do with a bit I could more use with some uh, cognitive more empathy for the... <laughs> anyway. F*** them empathetically, at least. <laughs> it's a more valuable book, I think, than the other one that gets mentioned a lot, which is J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, it's, it's, this is very good. David Brophy and Andrew Chubb, thank you guys so much for, for, for taking the time to, to talk with us about this really, really, really important issue. Well, thanks, guys. It's been fun. Yeah. Uh, David, what's your Twitter handle again, if you want to get people? Uh, I am, on Twitter, I go by Dave Brophy. Okay. I tend to alternate, but on Twitter, I'm Dave. So just Dave slash Brophy. Uh, that's me. Dave underscore. Underscore, underscore, underscore yeah. Brophy. Okay. And then, then Andrew, yours is Jubo Chubo. Z-H-U-B-O-C-H-U-B-O. Well remembered. Okay. All right. Excellent. Uh, and thanks. And we hope to have you back again soon. Jeremy, man, great to see you in New yeah. York over the past and couple of years. And you're flying off to Prague tonight. I am so, going to Prague. Yeah, uh, it'll luck. be fun. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And don't forget to leave us a positive review on iTunes or wherever it is that you go to get your podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.